We will be in Acts chapter 2 today, starting in verse 22, continuing on, uh, not only in our series in Acts, but in the sermon that Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost here in Acts chapter 2. We began this last week, and we're going to continue this week looking at this great sermon. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. The Word of the Lord says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we began last week, and I told you we would spend a couple weeks looking at this sermon and hopefully gleaning uh, some things that we can take from this great preacher, that being Peter, And it's good for us to do this. It's good for us to look at this great example of preaching. And for me, certainly, as I said last week, part of what you are are getting in this is you're uh, getting a part of the instruction that I am seeking to take from Peter on how I can effectively preach the Word of God as your pastor, as someone who is called to, to stand up here behind this pulpit reading and teaching the Word of God each week. There's a lot to be learned from this Peter that Sermon gives, but As I said last week, I think for each and every one of us as Christians, we can learn what our lives ought to look like, modeled after, fashioned after the principles we see here in Peter's sermon. And it's good to do this. It's good to do what what we might call a form check uh, on Peter here uh, to see how it is that he is engaging in this act of preaching the word of God. It's uh, a common thing, at least in, in disc golf, and I would imagine in Uh, in ball golf uh, or real golf, if you're not offended by me calling golf uh, real golf. Uh, I know some disc golfers that are very particular that know it's ball golf, not real golf. Disc golf is real golf. I'm not too particular about that. But one thing that, uh, that is a very helpful thing to do, if you're seeking to improve your game, if you're seeking to improve your form in golf, in disc golf, uh, even in something like basketball or in tennis or even in running, A very effective way to improve your form, to improve how you are engaging in this act and to do it better, is to look at someone who is very, very proficient in that skill. You can look up YouTube videos of of famous professional golfers or or disc golfers or other athletes and and examine their form and and see exactly how it is that they use their body in particular ways in order to achieve the, the greatness that they do on the field, on the court, on the course, whatever it might be. And then the idea is, in order to improve your form, you go home and you try to model your form after what they are doing. And in doing so, the hope is that you will glean from them the appropriate way to increase distance on your golf swing, to increase accuracy with the disc, or to increase endurance on the track. And this is a good practice for for athletes, but I would argue it's also a good practice for us as we look at the the sermon preached by Peter here. But I want to be clear that when I say we want to look at Peter's form, 
I don't mean that we need to heavily consider Peter's style. Indeed, style is not very easily conveyed through the text of Scripture. We don't really know exactly how loud Peter spoke. We don't know how much he moved his hands around or how much he moved around the, the front, around the, uh, the pulpit, as it were. We don't know much about Peter's uh, style in preaching as far as when he was actually delivering these words. But what we can learn about Peter's form is we can learn about what it is that he spoke. The subject with which he dedicated his time, the way in which he spoke with, with, uh, with emphasis on certain things, the significance that he gives to, to certain things, and the way he exhorts the people who are listening to his sermon. This is what I mean when I say we ought to examine Peter's form, not considering exclusively Peter's style. For indeed, in preaching, it's not that style is wildly unimportant, that it means nothing. But style is very, very secondary to content. What we really want to see and learn from Peter's sermon is his content. What is the content of Peter's sermon? And so that's what I hope we will see today as we glean from this great preacher for a second week in a row. Last week, we saw from Peter's sermon an example of how true preaching is expositional. We also looked a little bit at Peter's boldness, that he spoke in a way that was bold, but also in a way that was expositional, meaning he took the very words of Scripture from the prophet Joel, if you recall, and he took those words and preached Christ through the prophet Joel said, what you are seeing now in these men is a fulfillment of what the prophet spoke all the way back in the Old Testament. This week, we're going to focus on another characteristic of of what true preaching is and what I think is probably the most important aspect of what true preaching is. We will see from the middle section of Peter's sermon here today that true preaching is Christocentric. That is, it is centered on on Christ, focused on Christ. We're going to look at three verses today, and only three, but in these three verses, what we will see is that Peter is emphasizing three powerful and essential pictures of Christ's work that are necessary in order to effectively preach the gospel to these people. These three are, first of all, the display of Christ's authority, the destruction of Christ's life, and the glory of Christ's resurrection. And we're going to take a look at each one of these individually this morning as we make our way through this passage. We'll start with the display of Christ's authority. We see here as Peter has finished his introduction, as he has begun his sermon, he's getting through the introductory part of it, explaining what it is that these people are seeing in these men and women who are now speaking in tongues that are foreign to them. And as he gets now to the meat of his sermon, what we see is that Jesus is the main subject of Peter's sermon. And he begins to deal with his primary subject by discussing some of what Jesus did while he was here on this earth in his earthly ministry. And we see this in verse 22 where he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Peter is making the point here and 
verse 22, that all of these people are without excuse, that each and every one of them saw what it was that Jesus did, experienced Jesus' ministry, the miracles that he performed, the works that he did, the signs that he displayed. And so each and every one of them is without excuse of recognizing that Jesus was sent from God. The purpose of these signs, these wonders, these mighty works that Jesus did were in order to both validate the message that he proclaimed, the message of life in him, the message of forgiveness of sins that are available in him alone. But these signs and wonders also served to demonstrate his authority, the authority of God himself. The fact that Jesus was sent from God was really never questionable. Though the Pharisees and others, because of their hardness of heart, rejected it, there was no denying that Jesus was sent from God at the very least. There is no denying this because only one who has been sent from God could do the things that Jesus did, and each and every one of them knew this. In fact, this is exactly what Nicodemus said when he came to Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things, the things that you do, unless God is with him. Nicodemus says, we know, indicating this isn't just Nicodemus's revelation, but saying, all of us know that you are from God. There's no denying that, not truly and honestly, because no one can do the things that you do unless he is sent from God, unless he has an authority above human authority. So there was no denying, there was no questioning honestly whether or not Christ was sent from God, though there was one particular instance, and there are various times throughout the, the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, where the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders would question Jesus' authority. They would doubt it. They would seek to tear it down, seek to, uh, to, uh, to mess up his reputation. And there was one instance in particular recorded in the Gospels where the chief priests, the elders, they came and they challenged Jesus' authority. This is recorded for us in, in Matthew chapter 21. If you'd like, you can turn there with me. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 23 through through 27, we see this instance where they come and they challenge Jesus' authority and they say, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? As we've already established, if, if these men were being intellectually honest, they would say, we know very well where you gain this authority from because only one from God can do these things. But yet they come and they question his authority, asking where he got this authority, how he is able to do the things that he does. And Jesus responds not by declaring to them the, the absolute clear reality that he is from God. They already knew that. But he answers their accusation, their questioning of his authority with a question of his own. He says, I will also ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, the baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And in this, Jesus had him. He caught the Pharisees. He caught the scribes, the elders in this question. They were trapped and they knew this because they knew if they said, well, his baptism comes from heaven. 
that Jesus would say, well, then why don't you believe him about my authority, that I am sent from God, that he was the forerunner to me? So they couldn't say that, obviously, they knew that. But they also knew good and well that they could not say that his authority was not from heaven, that it was from man, because they knew there would be an uproar, that the people, by and large, the majority of them, the crowds, saw John's ministry, and they knew full well that this was not from man, this was not of men, but of heaven, that his authority was from God. And so they couldn't say that either. So they were trapped. And they said, we can't answer you on either one of these questions. We, we can't answer you. We have no way to answer you in this question. And so Jesus said, well, then I will not answer you regarding my authority. But Jesus did answer their authority, their question about his authority. Not in a direct way like they were hoping he would, not in a way that uh, they were hoping to, to trap him in. But Jesus rather answers them in the same chapter by telling them a parable. And it's a parable that's called the parable of the tenants or the parable of the wicked tenants. I don't know if you're familiar with this parable or not, but it's a fascinating parable where Jesus tells of a, of a man, a master of a vineyard who planted this vineyard, who put a fence around it, who put a wine press in it. And then this master of this vineyard went away to another country and left a people, left men in charge of his vineyard. He entrusted his vineyard to these men. And while he was away in order to check and, and see about the, uh, the vineyard, to check and see about the harvest that had, that had come and how things were going, he sent some of his servants to go and, and check in. And when his servants came, the keepers of the vineyard abused his servants. They beat them. They killed them. They stoned them. So the, the master sent more of his servants. And again, they did the same to them. To where ultimately the master decided, you know what I'm going to do? Since they keep abusing and, and killing my servants, I'll send my very own son. Surely they will respect him. Surely they will honor him. And what happened was when the wicked tenants saw the son of the master of the vineyard coming, what did they do? They said, let us kill him. And they killed him. They killed the son of the master of the vineyard that they were put in charge of. And in this parable, there was this moment where Jesus asked the question. He says in verse 40 of Matthew 21, What therefore will the owner, or excuse me, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And mind you, he's speaking to these same Jewish leaders, to the chief priests and to the elders. And this is their answer. They say to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death. And let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their, in their seasons. If, uh, if there were uh, emojis in Bibles, if I were to able to add those in, there is such a thing as an emoji Bible, uh, but that's not worth looking at. But if, if I were to put emojis into the Bible, right here is where I would have put that emoji of the person like slapping their face. You know, the, oh my gosh, these guys. Because what did they just do? They just outed themselves. They just exposed themselves because this parable was about them. And Jesus demonstrated the authority that, that I have is the same as the authority of the son of the master of the vineyard. He has authority because he was sent by the master. Jesus explicitly calls them out in this 
And they even admit their own guilt by saying, he shall put these wretches to a miserable death. And this is where Jesus stopped and said, I don't know why you're laughing. I'm talking about you. Jesus didn't actually say that. Jesus didn't have to say that. They knew full well that he was talking about them because we see in Matthew 21, 45 through 46, at the end of this story, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held, them, held him to be a prophet. They feared him and they feared the crowds because the crowds knew and acknowledged what these men refused to acknowledge, that this man was sent from God. He was more than a prophet. We know that to be the case. But at the very least, no one could deny this man's authority that Christ was sent from God. While the Jews might have been able to claim that they didn't know what, that Jesus was the Messiah or that he was the son of God, there was no denying they could not claim that they didn't know he was from God. The works that Jesus was doing were no secret. In fact, there were times when huge multitudes were following Christ throughout his ministry. Person upon person upon person was being healed. Jesus was healing the multitudes. He was casting out demons. The blind were being given their sight. This is not the kind of stuff that just happens. Not the kind of stuff that normal human beings have the ability to do. There was no denying the truth that was evident. Jesus had the authority of God. And that's the point that Peter is making here in verse 22. He says, as you yourselves know. And Peter makes it painfully clear in verse 23, the following verse, that the parable of the wicked tenants had come true exactly. We see this in point number two, the destruction of, of Christ's life. He says in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here we see the parable had come true and the son of the master of the vineyard had been killed by the very ones whom the master had put in charge of the vineyard. Jesus, the Son of God, had been killed by the very people of God. And notice that Peter is not narrowing his accusation here to just the Jewish leaders, to just the Pharisees, these people we have grown to disdain so much. He is not narrowing it down to just the chief priests, just the scribes, and he is certainly not laying the blame completely at the feet of the Romans. He is talking to a whole crowd of Jews here in Jerusalem who have come to celebrate Pentecost. He is addressing Israel as a whole. All are condemned. All are guilty. Peter here is heaping on guilt to the point that it might even make you a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, we might think, geez, Peter, why'd you have to say it like that? He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It seems very heavy to us. It seems very heavy-handed to bring this kind of accusation to lay this kind of guilt down at the feet of these people but this is exactly what needs to be done and i think oftentimes as christians in our evangelism and the way that we seek to proclaim the gospel to those around us that we have a 
genuine desire, certainly we ought to, to see other people come to faith in Christ, for them to know the Lord, for them to be saved from their sin. But I think so often we are terrified of putting guilt on people. We are terrified of making them feel bad, making them feel like they have done something wrong. We love to tell people about the, the goodness of Christ, the love that he has, the way he healed people, did miracles, the way he's given us new life. But if we go through all of that and tell of all those things, but we never expose sinners to their guilt, then we're doing them a disservice. Because the knowledge of guilt is an essential step on the road to salvation. Understanding our sin and understanding our guilt before God is necessary if we are to grasp our need of a substitute, our need of a savior. No one ever came to Christ thinking that they were okay, that they were innocent. The only people who have truly turned to Christ for salvation are those who first realized and acknowledged that they were guilty, that they were sinners. Only when we realize the guilt that we have before a holy and righteous God will we, will we ever see the value found in Christ's sacrifice. And this was absolutely true of the folks here listening to Peter. And this exposing of their guilt in connection with the message of Christ it did not result in what we are often afraid that it will result in, of then saying, forget about you. You're so mean. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Maybe that will happen. But what we see happen in the case here as Peter is preaching and he's, as he has accurately heaped guilt upon these people is we see it results in their repentance. Now, I'm not a big fan of spoiling things, but... I'm going to spoil it for you in verse 37. What is the result that comes from this sermon? Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to, the, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Jesus, uh, uh, Peter, in his preaching of the gospel to them and exposing to them the guilt due them for their sin, the same way each and every one of us is just as guilty because we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God, it results for them in repentance. Them saying, what must we do? Now that we have seen and understood our condition, what must we do? And again, we know that it results in the salvation of many, which we will look at in coming sermons. This represents the right response to being confronted with our guilt. But as we know, in the Pharisees' response to the wicked tenants, there is also a wrong way to respond. And their response was beginning to work toward the very thing that they were indicted for in the parable of the wicked tenant, the murder of the master's son. They were so furious at Jesus' parable that he would say something like that and say it about them. And that very Anger at Jesus led them to commit the very act that he told about in this parable. I uh, was uh, listening to a, Al excuse me, an Alistair Begg sermon on this text, and he used an illustration that I thought was very, very powerful. He said that 
One of the most hated things that Jesus said by the Pharisees, something that, that caused them the most grief, the most anguish, was the fact that he said that he was going to destroy the temple. Jesus said, I'm going to destroy the temple. Not one stone will be left upon another, and then in three days I will build it again. Now certainly they misunderstood what Jesus was saying here. What his, he was saying here was not a, a picture of the destruction of the temple, though that was certainly to come, but he was speaking of himself. But for these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders, they were so taken aback by the thought that the temple would be destroyed, that it would be made obsolete, that it would be insignificant, that it caused them anger and drove them to ultimately condemn Jesus and kill him. In fact, in the trial of Jesus, this was one of their main accusations. He said he was going to destroy the temple. And the irony that Alistair Begg exposes in the, the Pharisees here is that in the very act that they commit in order to prevent Jesus and in anger at the fact that he said he would destroy the temple was the final nail in the coffin to ensure the temple would be obsolete. Because in the murder of Jesus, in Jesus' death on the cross, the final sacrifice was made. The temple system as the Jews knew it was undone. No longer was worship centered in one specific place in Jerusalem, that being the temple but it was centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The very thing they feared most was the thing they brought about, the destruction of the temple in the sacrifice of Christ. This is where we begin to see the significance of the first part of 23, part that I have read, but certainly I have not forgotten about. The first part of verse 23, we see this statement. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This statement brings us a great deal of hope. We see that each and every aspect of these events, the arrest and trial of Jesus, the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter as he denied his Christ three times, and indeed, yes, even the crucifixion at the hands of the Romans, all of it, was a part of God's foreordained plan that he had set in place before time began. None of it was out of line with God's plan. He had decreed before all time that all these things would take place. And indeed, all of these things took place according to that plan. Knowing this truth of the sovereignty of God, his providential control over all these things, even over, over the death of his own son, brings us great hope and it brings us great confidence. And all the more when we get to the next part of our passage, the glory of Christ's resurrection. This is point number three. God's sovereignty and his definite plan become so glorious to us when we realize that, this inc that included in his plan was the resurrection of Christ. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God didn't end with the death of Christ. That was nowhere near the end. But also in his plan, it continued into the resurrection of Christ and beyond. We have reason to hope because of the sovereignty of God, especially when we read verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
R.C. Sproul says about this verse, Jesus was delivered by them to the Romans and condemned by every earthly court and killed. But the verdict of the court was trumped by the heavenly court. When the heavenly judge responded to the greatest injustice in history of the world by raising Jesus from the dead. That this earthly court, like all earthly courts, and like all earthly decisions, and like everything that happens here on this earth, was trumped by the heavenly court. It was trumped by God, the judge of all, who was sovereign over all. And though he allowed, not only allowed, but in fact decreed that Christ would suffer and die in this way, the end result was not Christ's death, but the next step in the plan that God had in place, that being his resurrection. And so we begin to see the significance of the resurrection, not only in Peter's sermon, though it is the main subject of the rest of his sermon, but throughout the book of Acts, throughout the preaching of the apostles, the resurrection of Christ is absolutely central. And so it's necessary for us to continually be reminded of the glory of it. Me and my wife, we uh, enjoy eating out, though we don't get to eat out as, as often as we would like. And when it comes time for us to eat out, we go through these same questions. So where, where are we going to eat? Well, you know, it'd be nice to try something new, try something fresh. We always think that. We hear about these new places that have opened up, places we've never tried. But what we almost always ultimately end up coming back to is we say, let's just go to Los Bravos. We know we love Los Bravos. It's delicious. We're going to be satisfied. And guess what? We have never left Los Bravos unsatisfied. We always leave happy with full bellies, with flavors that have been uh, bursting at, the, at the, uh, the hands of fajita on the beach. We have always been satisfied. The same is true when it comes to the resurrection of Christ. I, I sometimes, as, as one who preaches regularly, I think, man, I've, I've said a lot about the resurrection. I want to find a way to, to speak about the resurrection that is maybe that is new, fresh, takes a different perspective, something maybe that people haven't heard before, at least not heard from me, or at least not as much. But then I come back the same way we come back to Los Bravos. But why? I'm always so satisfied when I consider the results of the resurrection, the glory of the resurrection of Christ and what it means for us. And so that's what I'm going to do here today. I want to remind you of the hope that we have because of the resurrection of Christ. We have hope in this life knowing that our Savior lives. Like all other religious leaders that have come throughout the history of the world, they have all come and they have all died and they are all dead. Every single one of them. But that's not the case with Jesus. He came and he lived and he died. But he now lives. He rose from the dead. In fact, the Bible says it was not possible for him to be held. And our hope, our joy gets all the more magnificent when we consider the fact that he rose, not just loosing the pangs of death for himself, but for all who trust in him. We have in the resurrection a promise of victory over death. Christ serves as our first fruits. That is the first fruit of a coming greater harvest. This is what we see in 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Paul writes in verses 20 through 23. This is after he spoke about what would be true if the resurrection weren't true. But he says, but the resurrection is true. So he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Church, we have reason to celebrate each and every time we read of the resurrection. Each and every time we are reminded of what it is that Christ has done for us to secure our victory. When the pangs of death were loosed from Christ, it was not he alone who was now freed from death, but all who belonged to him. As the new and better Adam, Christ secured eternal life for all his people and has loosed the pangs of death for everyone who puts their trust in him. This is the good news of the gospel. Come to a head. I'm reminded as we me and a few others who have been reading through the book Pilgrim's Progress. There is a, a beautiful passage in, in the book after uh, Pilgrim and Faithful have made their way into uh, Vanity Fair, this great fair of the world, and being accused of, of wrongs that they did not commit. The only, the only thing they did against these people was that they lived righteously and upright and refused part, to partake in the evils and in the vanities of these people but because of this they were hated and the people accused them as john bunyan says of starting a great hubbub and they are brought into this court and the the judge comes in and they are condemned left and right by these evil members of the court by those who come to witness against them and after giving his defense a glorious defense of his actions as faithful does i would encourage you to read that for yourself we see the end result. Though he was innocent, faithful was martyred for the faith. He was martyred for his faithfulness to Christ here in Vanity Fair. That's a very moving moment in the death of faithful. But one of the most moving parts of it is that the death of faithful results in what John Bunyan calls the fastest route to the celestial city. That as he died, after he died, immediately there was a chariot. In fact, John Bunyan says a chariot waiting for him that came and immediately took him on the shortcut to the celestial city. Death for faithful, as it is for all who belong to Christ, is our credit. It serves for us as a good because it immediately brings us into the very presence of God. Death has truly lost its victory and its sting, as Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians. And what is true of faithful is true of us. And John Bunyan writes this poem about faithful in the book. He says this, Well, faithful, thou hast faithfully professed unto thy Lord with whom thou shalt be blessed. When faithless ones with all their vain delights are crying out under their hellish plights, Sing, faithful, sing, and let thy name survive, for though they killed thee, thou art yet alive. This is true of all who find themselves in Christ. We are indeed freed 
from the pangs of death, from the torment of death, from the sting of death. And if you ever wonder if that's true, just consider the truthfulness, the reality of the resurrection. As sure as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too look forward as believers to a coming resurrection of the dead. Let your hope, let your trust, let your confidence be in that. Not in anything else in this world. If you've been confronted with the guilt of your sin, with the reality of the fact that you stand guilty before a holy and righteous God, then let me tell you, as Paul teaches in Romans, what you deserve is God's wrath. You deserve, as the Pharisees proclaimed against himself, that you are a wretch deserving of a miserable death. But the gospel doesn't end there. If you have been faced with that reality today, then the response that ought to stir you, the response that you ought to be drawn to, is not anger, is not frustration, is not to harden your heart towards Christ, but rather see that forgiveness and mercy and grace is available in Him. And the death that we deserve, the wrath of God that we deserve, He took on the cross on our behalf. And repent of your sin, confess your sin, and trust in Christ for salvation and not in anything else. And so it will be said of you like faithful, though they kill thee, thou art yet alive. Let's pray.